Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can someone uh, just give me a mic text, please? Make sure you can all hear me. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. Uh, I want to welcome you all to inshallah ta'ala the first of our uh, lessons on uh, Surah Al-Teen, which is what we're going to begin with, inshallah ta'ala, which is like our next uh, grouping of surahs, inshallah ta'ala, that we're going to go through. Uh, and last week, as you know, we finished off our the second of our two specials that we did. So we did the special on the rulings of Sajdat Al-Tilawa, the prostration of uh, recitation in the Qur'an. And then over the last couple of weeks, we went through an introduction of the science of Al-Waqf and Ibtida, which is the science of starting and stopping, pausing and starting in the Qur'an. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, as we know in the Qur'an, Allah azza wa from the miracle of the Qur'an is the way that we stop and pause within the Qur'an and the way that we restart. That is also from, also all from the manner in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was taught the Qur'an and the manner in which he taught the Qur'an to the companions radiyallahu anhum ajma'een and then from there on subsequent generations have continued to do that over time. And so that's something which we did uh, over the last couple of weeks. So inshallah ta'ala today we're going to begin with our next surah, which is Surah Atin, we're back to our tafsir. Uh, but before we begin, just a quick announcement uh, on the resources uh, tab, or under the resources tab rather, uh, on the portal, the summaries and the snapshots are now, alhamdulillah, working again and they're all back there and updated. So we just want to apologize on behalf of the team for the delay in getting that done. Uh, as you know, it takes a lot of time, this back end stuff, there's so much to do and there's so many uh, little, little jobs that have to be done. Uh, and the brothers and the sisters who are behind the scenes work extraordinarily hard to to do that but obviously sometimes that takes longer than we would like so apologies for the time that has taken but inshallah ta'ala the snapshots and the summaries that the transcribing team are doing and they're doing an amazing job alhamdulillah and mashallah tabarakallah they that is all available there now and i think that as a resource along with the fully transcribed notes then you have the snapshots you have the summaries together that is something which inshallah ta'ala uh, makes QP uh, unique in terms of what we are trying to achieve and the legacy that inshallah ta'ala we ask Allah Azza wa that he helps us to leave behind. So we're on the 95th surah of the Quran. So the 95th surah of the Quran is surah teen right? Surah teen And surah teen as we know, uh, means the fig, right? The surah of the fig. And this is a surah which uh, we're going to go through now and we're going to speak about. And it's a surah where you will find one of those examples of where some of the scholars have used um, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in terms of the the matters that he takes an oath by and then they have uh, associated to it an extra meaning or some of the scholars of tafsir did that and that's a good example of using Quran and contemplation or using tafsir rather and contemplation so you have the tafsir which is the apparent verses of the Quran of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what they mean and then you have tadabbar which is reflection, contemplation to ponder over the verses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to draw out deeper meanings. But in order for you to be able to do that, you need to have a good basis and understanding of tafsir, to simply come and make tadabbur of the Qur'an or try to make contemplation without really understanding what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying and what the scholars of tafsir said concerning that verse, makes it a very difficult endeavor. And not only that, but it's also more dangerous because the person is more likely to fall into mistake and do things which are incorrect. But this is a good example of that in this surah, as we will see inshallah ta'ala. Shortly. So, 
as we always do, we begin with the introduction of this surah and it's in particular the names by which this surah is known. And the first of those names that, are, that this surah is known by is the famous name, which is Surah Al-Teen, right? which is the common name that we give to this surah today. And that's actually mentioned by many of the scholars of tafsir in their works and in the books of hadith. So for example, Ibn Qutaybah mentions this uh, in his works, Al-Imam Al-Tirmidhi and Al-Nisai from the scholars of hadith in their collections of hadith when they come to the tafsir of this surah. They speak about it and they name it Surah Al-Teen. Ibn Hazm, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar of the Zahiri Madhab, also calls it Surah Al-Teen. Ibn Hazm has a whole, uh, a number of works on the sciences of the Quran, including An-Nasikh al-Mansukh. So you will often find him being referenced as a scholar in the sciences of the Quran. Ibn Abi Hatim, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, calls it Surah Al-Teen. Al-Hakim, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his Mustadrak, another collection of hadith, also calls it Surah Al-Teen. And then from the famous scholars of, of, of Tafsir that we often reference in QP, Al-Imam Al-Baghawi, Ibn Atiyah, Ibn Al-Jawzi, Al-Imam Al-Siyuti, and Al-Imam Al-Shawkani. Alayhim rahmatullah, rahimahumullah ajma'in. So the vast majority of the scholars in their works refer to this surah as Surah Al-Teen. So that's the first name by which this surah is known. The second name by which this surah is known is Surah Wat-Teeni Wa-Zaytun, so which is the entirety of the first verse. It's known by the first verse, Surah Wattini was Zaytun. And from the scholars who referenced it in this way, as is Imam Abdul Razak al-Sanani, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, from the famous scholars of Tafsir, but also of Hadith. Abdul Razak, as you know, has uh, he is one of the collections, one of the collections of Athar, of narrations that you get from the Prophet and the companions, is his Musannaf, Musannaf Abdul Razak. It's a very famous collection of narrations. He also has a book in Tafsir, as we've mentioned before, uh, that's ascribed to him, and, and in that tafsir, he calls it or calls this surah Surah Watini was Zaytun. And likewise, the Imam Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, in his tafsir, also called this surah Watini was Zaytun. The third name by which it is known by is Watin, Surah Watin. So the first name is Atin without the wow at the beginning, and the third name is Watin with the wow at the beginning, as you find in the actual verse. And this is uh, referenced or it is called by this name by Imam Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak rahimahullah ta'ala the famous scholar of hadith and tafsir and also by Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala who we often call as the Shaykh al-Mufassirin the scholar of all of the scholars of tafsir and Imam al-Tabari also references the surah as surah Wat-Teen. so those are the three names that you will find by and large for this particular surah so number one is surah Wat-Teen, uh, surah Atin which is the common name that we now know it by and call it by. Number two, Surah Watini was Zaytun, which is taken after the whole verse, verse number one of the surah. And name number three is Surah Watin, which is the first portion of the first verse of this surah. In terms of its revelation, then the majority of the scholars seem to be of the opinion uh, that it is a Mecki surah, revealed pre-revelation. And that is the opinion of the majority of the scholars of tafsir to the extent that some of them even said that that is an issue of ijma' that it is an issue of consensus that there is no difference of opinion and so some of the scholars you will find in their works didn't even reference there being another opinion but they simply just said that it is a makki surah and from amongst those scholars is az-zajaj and ibn hazm and al-baghawi and ibn kathir rahimahumullah they just mentioned that it's a Makki surah by consensus, meaning that there is no difference of opinion. Al-Imam ibn Atiyah ta'ala also said the same thing. He said, Makkiyah, la He said that this is a Makki surah and I don't know of any 
difference of opinion concerning this amongst the scholars of tafsir. However, there is actually a difference of opinion that you will find if you reference and find or look at other works of tafsir. So for example, if you were to go back to Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi in his tafsir, or Ibn Al-Jawzi, or Imam Al-Shawkani, or Tahir Ibn Ashur, they will mention another opinion, and that is that some of the scholars said that it is a Madani Surah. And that particular uh, reference of it being a Madani Surah, meaning revealed post-revelation, or post-migration to Medina, seems to be large, by and large attributed to uh, uh, the companion Abdullah ibn Abbas and then from him it's also referenced as being the position of some uh, or a handful of the tabi'in including Qatada including Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala uh, and Ibn Abbas has both narrations he has a narration saying that it is a Makki surah narration that says that it is a Madani surah as well so he has both that are mentioned concerning this Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala said concerning the revelation of the surah, he said, وَفِيهَا قَوْنَانَ He said there are two opinions. The first is that it is a Makki surah, and that is the opinion of the majority, such as Al-Hassan and Ata' and many others. And then he said the other opinion is that it is a Madani surah. And he ascribed this as being the position of Ibn Abbas al-Qatada rahimahumullah. And Imam al-Mawardi in his tafsir actually references the statement of Ibn Abbas, that it is a, uh, that it is a Madani surah. Uh, Al-Imam al-Shawkani ta'ala, he says and it is Makkiya fi qawl al-Jamhur the majority of the scholars said that this surah is Makki however Al-Imam al-Qurtubi mentions the narration of Ibn Abbas in which he said that it is Madani uh, Imam al-Shawkani goes on to say but this goes against the other narration that we have of Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma that is collected by Ibn Mardawi and Al-Bayhaqi and others that he said unzilat surah al-Teen bi Makkah that this surah was revealed in Makkah meaning that it is a Meccan revelation and so you find, uh, as we've often seen, right? We've often seen in the statements of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum and others that sometimes you get conflicting reports from some of these companions, and that may be a mistake. It may be that the chain of narration to that companion, uh, some of those narrations are weak in their chain, so they're not all authentically ascribed to that companion. It is possible that there could be a difference or a discrepancy for a number of reasons. Ibn Ashur rahimahullah taala said concerning this surah, it is a Makki surah. In the opinion of the majority of the scholars, to the extent that Ibn Atiyah even said that he knows of no difference of opinion. And an Imam al-Suyuti in his Itqan, as we know his book on the sciences of the Qur'an, Al-Itqan fi ulum al-Qur'an, he said, uh, and by the way, is this, uh, has this book been translated, Al-Itqan? Does anyone know if Al-Itqan by Imam al-Suyuti has been translated into English? Uh, if someone can let me know if they've come across anything uh, concerning that. So Imam Al-Suyuti in his book, he has a whole section, a chapter that he dedicates to the Makki and the Madani surahs. And he mentions where there's a difference of opinion. And he doesn't mention this being from amongst them. So in his opinion as well, as we said before, he's one of those scholars that seems to just simply say that it is a Makki surah, that it is a Makki surah. However, Imam Al-Qurtubi, as we said, mentions the narration of Ibn Abbas عنهما, that it is a Madani surah. But that seems to be just that one narration and there is obviously the conflicting report that goes uh, with the majority and that is that it is a Makki surah. Salan just said that I just found a draft. What do you mean by a draft? Do you mean like it's a PDF? Do you mean it's uh, someone's working on it? Do you mean, what, what does that exactly mean? That you found a draft of this? And if so, how long, how big is that draft? Is it because the Arabic, the, the Arabic is a couple of volumes at least, or even one big volume, depending on which edition you get. 
and it can even be small like four volumes that you can find some editions with so um but anyway inshallah we'll look into that uh, this surah is mentioned in the hadith in al-bukhari of al-bara ibn azib radiyallahu an not in terms of its virtue but in terms of it being something which the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam recited in his salah Al-Bara radiyallahu an says in this hadith in Al-Bukhari that the Prophet was once traveling with us and he read in the first raka'ah of Salatul Isha At-Tini was Zaytun Bitini was Zaytun right? Bitini was Zaytun So that's uh, the introduction of the surah and it consists of eight verses So it is a Makki surah It has three names that it is known by Surah At-Tin Surah At-Tini was Zaytun Surah At-Tin and it consists of eight verses so now we come on to verse number one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Wattini wazzaytoon. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath. And he takes an oath by two things. The first is attin, which means the fig, right, which is a well-known fruit. And the second is a zaytoon, by the olive. Right, also a well-known, uh, a well-known, uh, thing that's eaten by people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by, do, by these two things and we've already established in a number of verses and surahs that we've done before of this kind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he takes an oath by something is to show it's important and to show its benefits. Right? It's, to, uh, it's to show and emphasize its position. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath here by watini wa zaytun, when he says watini was Zaytun and Allah Azza takes an oath, the scholars of Tafsir differ. Is that actually the oath that Allah Azza taking is taking? Is it actually by the fig and the olive, meaning the actual physical uh, physical edible foods that we call and we know as the fig and the olive? Or are they symbols? Is it metaphorical? Is it sim- symbolic for something else? Right? And you will find these different opinions. So what we will do is I will mention to you some of the opinions amongst the early scholars of Tafsir. And then I will mention to you, I will summarize that for you in terms of how many different opinions that has been uh, that has been uh, divided into, or how many different opinions consist on this issue. And so we're going to do this in a slightly different way. I will mention first two narrations, and those narrations will mention all of the opinions, right? And so you will find conflicting narrations, and you will find that I don't mention them in any particular order. So for example, one scholar may say one thing, then another scholar may say the second thing, then the third one may agree with the first. There's no particular order to it. But then, inshallah ta'ala, we will summarize and we will bring some order to it so that it's easier for us to understand. Because it's not just this verse, verse number one, but verses two and three also follow suit because all of them are things that Allah Azza wa is taking an oath by. So we have a number of things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by in this particular surah. So the first of them is a teen and a zaytun, the fig and the olive. Uh, ibn Wahab, rahimahullah ta'ala, Abdullah ibn Wahab al-Misri, rahimahullah, the famous scholar from the former students of Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala he mentions the statement of Ibn Zayd Ibn Zayd can anyone tell me who Ibn Zayd is? anyone tell me? if you come across in the books of Tafsir and we've, I think we've mentioned this before the name Ibn Zayd so if you're reading Tabari or you're reading Ibn Kathir or you're reading Qurtubi and they, one of them says that Ibn Zayd said this who is Ibn Zayd? And this is an important methodology in studying tafsir. Just as if you're studying, for example, hadith and you come across in a chain of narrators uh, the name of, for example, Al-A'raj or Abu Zinad or any of the number of narrators of hadith to understand who they are when they're mentioned 
by just a simple name or for example if in the hadith the the narrator of the hadith the companion is called Abdullah who is Abdullah in hadith which Abdullah is it Abdullah bin Umar Abdullah bin Abbas Abdullah bin Umar which which person is it that's being referred to that's a methodology that's important so whether you're studying tafsir or whether you're studying Quran or whether you're studying whatever it is it is important to understand how those scholars deal in that particular topic so in hadith for example if it said Abdullah as a companion and nothing else, generally speaking, nine times out of ten, it is Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anh, that is being referred to. But the question here is in tafsir, if the scholars of tafsir you will find this name common, he's a common, commonly uh, referenced scholar of tafsir from the early scholars of tafsir, and he's called Ibn Zayd. Who is Ibn Zayd? Can anyone tell me? Anyone know who Ibn Zayd is? Ibn Zayd. Who is Ibn Zayd? Was he the son of Zayd ibn Haritha? No. No. Not the free slave of the Prophet. No, no. That's not. That's uh, Usama ibn Zayd, is the famous companion of Zayd uh, and the son of Zayd ibn Haritha. Who is Ibn Zayd? Ibn Zayd, Ibn Zayd, amongst the scholars of Tafsir, is Abdul Rahman ibn Zayd ibn Aslam. So Ibn Zayd, his name is Abdul Rahman. Ibn Zayd means the son of Zayd. His name is Abdul Rahman, his father's name is Zayd, and his grandfather's name is Aslam. Right? And Aslam is the free slave of Umar radiallahu Aslam is the free slave of Umar radiallahu And so he comes and is often therefore called Al Adawi. Right? Al Adawi. Because he takes the ascription uh, of the of the um, of the uh, tribe of Umar radiallahu anh, because he's a free slave from his tribe and uh, Umar radiallahu anh is Adawi, his tribe is Adawi. So this is not Usama ibn Zayd. Right? And, and that's, that's, this is why it's an important methodology of tafsir. Because if you were to just say ibn Zayd generally as a companion, then yeah, maybe the one who would come to your mind is, as you're saying, Usama ibn Zayd, the companion of the Prophet sallam, the son of Zayd ibn Haritha. But in each science, so when you're speaking in, in, in for example, fiqh, or you're speaking in tafsir, or you're speaking in hadith, these names, when they're mentioned, they're mentioned in that context. So Usama ibn Zayd is not amongst the famous scholars of tafsir, amongst the companions. He doesn't have many narrations of tafsir. And so therefore, he's not the one that's being referred to. So who is the one being referred to if they say Ibn Zayd in the books of tafsir? He's this scholar, Abdul Rahman ibn Zayd ibn Aslam. And he's, uh, he's, uh, has many narrations of tafsir. He has many narrations of tafsir. His father, Zayd ibn Aslam, was a famous scholar of hadith and tafsir and so on as well. But this is when they say Ibn Zayd, it is normally Abdurrahman Ibn Zayd Ibn Aslam. So Ibn Wahab says that Ibn Zayd said that his father said concerning this, that a teen is the mosque of Damascus and a Zaytun is the mosque of Iliya. Iliya is Jerusalem in Arabic, right? The mosque of Damascus and the mosque of Zaytun is the mosque of Jerusalem. Abdul Razak in his tafsir, he mentions the statement of Qatada that he said that a teen is the mountain that you find in Damascus and a Zaytun is the one upon which Masjid al-Aqsa is built because we know Masjid al-Aqsa is upon a rock, right? It's built on a type of, a kind of like a mountain uh, or a hill. So that's the one that it is referring to. And Abdul Razak also mentions in his tafsir the statement of Al-Kalbi and he says concerning a teen and a Zaytun, it is the two fruits that you eat, the two things that you eat, that is what is being referred to. And this was the narration that was also mentioned by Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, Imam al-Bukhari in al-Sahih in his book of tafsir uh, he mentions the statement of Mujahid rahimahullah and he says huwa tinu wa zaytun alladhi ya'kulun nas 
it is the teen, the fig and the olive that people eat, right? That people eat. And uh, Ibn Hajj rahimahullah ta'ala in his explanation of al-Bukhari, he says meaning that this is what the common fruits that people eat, meaning the common foods that people eat. And he says, and this was the statement of of Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala. And Imam Hakim uh, mentions a number of narrations as being reports of Ibn Abbas, right? So he says, for example, that Ibn Abbas, rahimahullah ta'ala, in one narration said concerning teen, that it is the mosque of Nuh alayhi salam, that he built upon Judi. Judi is the mountain upon which the ark stops, right? As Allah Azza wa mentions in Surah Hud, al-Judi. So he says, that it is the mosque Nuh alayhi salam built upon Judi. That's one narration of Ibn Abbas. The second narration of Ibn Abbas is that a teen is a mountain that consists of figs and a zaytun is a mountain that has upon it olives, meaning one has fig trees and one has olive trees. And in another narration, he said that it is that a teen is the uh, the mosque of Damascus or the, the, the mountain that you will find in Damascus. In another narration of his, he said that a teen is the mosque of the people of the cave and a zaytun is the mosque of the people of Jerusalem. And in yet another narration, he said that a zaytun is the mosque or the, the mountain upon which you have al-Masjid al-Aqsa. Right? And all of these are mentioned as being narrations of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. Right? All of them, Imam Hakim mentions, and he mentions with his chains of narration to each one of them, all of these different opinions. And that's why I said to you at the beginning that there is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir. Whether this is something which is a literal uh, thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken an oath by or whether it is symbolic and metaphorical that Allah is actually referring to something else and the teen and zaytun are not actually the fig and the olive that Allah is referring to but it is something else so let me give you now a summary those are the different statements that you will find and there are more as well but I've just chosen a selection of them but I have to give you a summary as Imam al-Tabari will summarize it and he mentions it as two uh, broad points. He mentions it as two broad points, the or two main, two broad opinions. The first opinion he says, Rahimahullah Taala, is those who said that teen a fig is the fig that you eat, and zaytun the olive is the olive that you eat, right, and that you draw from it its oil and so on and so forth. Meaning, it's the two foods that we very well know. So when we say fig and olive, what comes to your mind? That's what's being referred to. Those two things that you eat. And he said. And Imam al-Tabari, that this was the opinion of a number of the scholars, such as al-Hasan al-Basri al-Ikrimah and Mujahid and Ibrahim al-Nakha'i and al-Kalbi and Qatada alayhim rahmatullah. And then the second opinion that he mentions is that a teen is the mosque of Nuh alayhi salam, the mosque that Nuh alayhi salam built upon the mountain of Judi, and a zaytun is the mosque of Baytul Maqdis. Right? And that is the opinion of, and in attributes, this is being one of the narrations of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And actually, if you look at the narrations that we mentioned, the majority of those narrations amongst the scholars who chose the opinion that it's not literal, that the fig and the olive are not literally the fig and the olive, but they're symbolic of something, only on this narration of Ibn Abbas do you find the mention of the mosque of Nuh alayhi salam. In fact, what the majority will say is that one is the land of Damascus, the trees or the mountains of the land of Damascus, and the other one is the other trees that you find in Jerusalem, right? the land of Jerusalem. And that general area of a sham, right, as we know, is a place of blessing. It's a place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed and Allah Azza wa Jal calls it Ardul Mubarak, right? He calls it a blessed land. Allah Azza wa Jal says in Surah Isra Subhanahu Ladi Asra bi Abdihi, Laylam min al Masjid al Harami ilal Masjid al Aqsa, Alladi Barakna Hawla. 
Glory be to the one who took his servant on a night journey from Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa, the surroundings of which we have made blessed. Right? And that's generally considered to be the whole area of Al-Quds. Right? And some of the scholars even extended beyond that and said Al-Sham. Because Al-Sham is a place, as we know, where a number of the prophets of Allah Azza wa Jal was sent from. It is a place that the prophets, many of them, came from and hailed from and they spent time there or they had their peoples there, their nations that they called to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with. But then you have this other opinion also that's mentioned of Ibn Abbas that is referring to the Masjid of Nuh salam, Al-Judi. And as some of the scholars mention, that no one really knows where Al-Judi is. Right? It's not a place that people are familiar with. The name is mentioned in the Quran, but exactly where that place is. So Damascus is known, Jerusalem is known, Baytul Maqdis is known. If you were to say, uh, give those types of landmarks and places and cities, they are known. But if you were to say the Mosque of Al-Judi, the mountain of Nuh that's not a place that the people are familiar with or that it is a place that it is known. Right? And so that's why other scholars in their books of tafsir, when they choose the different opinions as the main opinions, don't necessarily mention this particular narration. But they will, what they will say is that Teen is the land of Damascus and Zaytun is the land of Jerusalem. Al-Imam al-Tabri, however, after mentioning this difference of opinion, he says, and the strongest of those opinions is the one that is the first opinion, the one that says that the fig is a fig and the olive is an olive. And he says, and that is because that is what the Arabs understood those two terms to mean. And this basically is what the issue comes down to now. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about something in the Quran, is it something which Allah azza wa says in the sense that we understand it's everyday Arabic language? Or is there metaphor, symbolism in the Quran that you don't understand at first glance but requires further delving into? And what is without doubt and Allah knows best, the stronger of the two opinions, is that it is always what is apparent. The Arabic Quran is what is apparently read, what is understood to the minds and to the hearts of the Arabs when you use the words of a teen and a zaytun. And no Arab would say to you that a teen and a zaytun refers to Damascus or refers to Jerusalem or refers to this land or that land or this mountain or that mountain. They will tell you that it is two items of food that you consume, right? They are two things that you eat. That's what it's going to refer to. Now then, at a different stage to say, and those two Allah chose for X, Y, and Z reason, that is possible. And that is how these statements of Ibn Abbas and others from amongst the Tabi'een should be understood in that light. That they already knew that the Arabs that they were speaking to, the companions and the, scholars, the students of the companions, the scholars amongst the Tabi'een, know the meaning of Teen and Zaytun. They're not just going to sit there and tell them what is obvious. They're telling them the deeper meaning. They're not what you, once you understand this, what it's referring to is look at the lands in which these particular types of food items and plants grow, where you find these trees in abundance, right? And that is how it should be understood. Not to say, for example, that Ibn Abbas doesn't make tafsir of the Quran with what is apparent, but he has his own symbolism or understanding. That's not befitting of one of the companions of the Prophet but for them to understand because they're speaking to a group of scholars, right? Their students are the likes of Mujahid and Ikrim and Ata. These aren't people who are just your average Muslims, people like me and you that don't have any background in tafsir. These are in and of themselves imams, right? Scholars of hadith and tafsir and so on and Quran. And so when he's speaking and addressing them in his narrations, it is important to understand that context, right? And that methodology is important to understand as well. So even uh, Imam Ibn Jarir al-Tabari ta'ala, chooses the opinion that a teen is a teen. The teen is the fig that Allah refers to and a zaytun are olives that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to. And he says because the Arabs don't know of it any in any other way except that. right? 
And so what you can say then, as Imam Al-Tabri goes on to say, وَالْمُرَادُ مِنَ الْكَلَامَ الْقَصَمُ بِمَنَابِتِ الْتِينِ وَمَنَابِتِ الزَّيْتُونِ فَيَكُونُ ذَلِكَ مَذْهَبًا وَإِنْ لَمْ يَكُنْ عَلَى صِحَّةِ ذَلِكَ أَنَّهُ كَذَلِكَ دَلَالَةٌ فِي ظَاهِرِ التَّنْزِيلِ وَلَا مِنْ قَوْلِ مَنْ لَا يَجُوزُ خِلَافُهُ لِنَّ دِمَشْقَ بِهَا مَنَابِتُ التِّينِ وَبَيْتُ الْمَقْدِسِ مَنَابِتُ الزَّيْتُونِ He said then, by extension, it is possible for you to say that now that we understand that the fig is the fig and the olive is the olive, that where do these two plants and trees generally grow in abundance amongst the Arabs? It is in the land of Asham, in Damascus, in Jerusalem. Then now by extension to understand, okay, what is the significance of those places? And they are places of prophethood, places that Allah has blessed, places that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to in the Quran. Now by extension you can say that. But to just jump from A to Z, right, without anything in between, that is what Imam al-Tabari ta'ala is saying, is not something which should be done, and no doubt that that is a better way of making tafsir and a safer way of making tafsir and an easier more methodologically sound way of making tafsir of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, Imam al-Suyuti even mentions another statement of Ibn Abbas عنهما, and that is that he says that Al-Teen and Al-Zaytun are the two mosques Al-Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca and Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem and it's referring to the night ascent right to the night journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, as Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in Surah Al-Isra. Al-Imam Ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Allah Azza wa Jal takes an oath by these two trees. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by these two three trees because of the many benefits that come from them and from the, their, their fruits. And because they are found in abundance in the land of Asham, and that is the place where the Prophet Isa السلام, was sent. Right? And many of the Prophets of Bani Israel are sent in Asham. But the most prominent from amongst them perhaps, uh, and the one that is closest to our Prophet وسلم, in terms of chronology and in terms of message and so on, or Sharia is no doubt the Prophet Isa Al-Imam Al-Baghawi said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses in the surah the mention of a fig and takes an oath by it, because it is a uh, it is a pure fruit, and a fruit that will be similar to the fruits of Jannah, and he chooses the olive because of its many benefits and because it is a blessed tree, as is mentioned in the Sunnah and the Quran in general, and that its fruit, meaning the, the actual olive itself and its oil, is something which can be used in terms of cooking, in terms of benefiting, in terms of using in many different ways, and we already know the importance of olive oil and how it's used in many different ways and the many benefits that it has in terms of health and how pure it is. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it in the Quran as coming the oil of a shajaratun mubarakatun zaytuna. Right? Shajaratun mubarakatun zaytuna. When Allah speaks in the verse of light in Surah An-Nur about the light that is lit, the oil for that light that Allah Azza wa Jalla describes is described as being the oil from the olive plant, right? From the olive tree, showing again its importance and its purity. Uh, and that's why Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah ta'ala said that the scholars or the rather the doctors, doctors have said that there are many benefits of of eating figs and eating olives and that there are many benefits in doing so and using for example the oil from the olive tree in terms of its many benefits that can be used for general health purposes. Point of this being that it is something which we understand and the fig is something which uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to also in the Quran and it is a sweet tasting fruit um, and it is something which is which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created and it's one of those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken an oath by in the Quran 
So that is verse number one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by those two things. Watini wazaytun. Watini wazaytun. And then in verse number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes a third oath. And he says, Waturi sinin by Mount Sinai. Waturi sinin by Mount Sinai. And again, I will mention to you briefly the some uh, or a selection of the statements of the scholars of tafsir concerning the meaning of this and whether it's something again which is uh, which is uh, apparent by its wording meaning we just take the apparent wording or whether it is symbolic and metaphorical for something else and then I will I will again summarize that for you in more detail so again Ibn Zayd as we said Abdurrahman Ibn Zayd Ibn Aslam he says that Rattori Sinin refers to the mosque of Attur and Abdul Razak mentions the statement of Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala. He says, Atturi Sinin is a mountain in the Sham and it is a blessed mountain. And Abdul Razak, he mentions the statement of Al Kalbi rahimahullah and he says that Atturi Sinin is any mountain that is green. Any mountain that has trees upon it, greenery upon it in Arabic is called Turi Sinin. And Imam Ibn Hajj rahimahullah ta'ala mentions in his tafsir, in, in his explanation of Al Bukhari, the statement of Mujahid. And that is that he says, and Atur is Sinin, Atur means a mountain. And the word Sinin means Mubarak, it means blessed. So it refers to a blessed mountain. So those are a selection of, a, of, uh, of statements that you will find concerning the tafsir of this verse. And Imam Al-Tabari, Ta'ala, he summarizes it in his tafsir. And I like his summary of this particular uh, verse, so I will mention it to you. And he says that the first opinion that you will find concerning the tafsir of Turi Sinin is that it refers to, it is referring to the mountain of Musa alayhi salatu wasalam. What does that mean, the mountain of Musa alayhi salam? The mountain upon which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to Musa alayhi salam revelation. Right? It is called Turi Sinin. And so that's what it's, what's being referred to. And he says and this is the opinion of uh, Ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah. Right, this is uh, the generation that he mentions of, of, of this of being uh, the statement of Ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma and Qatada. Qatada said Turi Sinin is Masjidu Musa alayhi salam. And Al-Hasl al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala also said that it is the mountain of Musa and there is a narration also of Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma saying that Turi Sinin is the mountain of Atur meaning the mountain of Musa alayhi salam. So that's the first body of opinion. That's the first opinion concerning the meaning of Turi Sinin. The second opinion goes to a more linguistic root, and that is that it is basically every mountain upon which there is greenery. So as we know, there are mountains that don't have anything, they're just full of rocks or mountains that are made of sand or mountains that don't have anything that grows from them. But then there are mountains that are green. They have plants and leaves and so on. And so they said, this second opinion amongst the scholars of Tafsir is that Tori Sinu refers to any mountain that is green that has leaves and that has greenery and plants growing upon it. And that is referred to as the statement of Ikrimah, rahimahullahu ta'ala. He said, Turi Sinin, it is a good tree and in the, um, and, and, and it is the, uh, and it is, um, it is a good tree. Ikrimah, rahimahullahu ta'ala said, and, and uh, he continues and he says, and it is a tree upon which you will find vegetation and greenery and similar to it is a statement of Mujahid rahimahullah. So they said that it is a green, uh, tree that has greenery upon it. The third opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir that Imam al-Tabari mentions is that the word Tur refers to a mountain and Sinin refers to 
uh, or Sinin refers to a blessed mountain. So the word Sinin here means Mubarakun Hasan. And this was uh, reported as being the position of Qatada Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. Qatada Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. Uh, and Imam Al-Tabari Rahimahullahu Ta'ala in his uh, conclusion to this, he says that Turi Sinin is the well-known mountain. And there is a mountain that also has greenery upon it. And so therefore to say that it is the mountain that is blessed, the mountain that has greenery upon it, and the mountain that it is the well-known Tur, which is the Tur of Musa alayhi salam, all of them are the same because all of them describe one and the same thing. And so the scholars of Tafsir, it seems like each one is mentioning a particular point concerning that particular mountain. Imam Tabari is basically reconciling, saying that all of those opinions can work for this being that particular mountain of Musa alayhi salam. And so as we can see now, these scholars who take this position of Atin was Zaytun being the fig and the olive as actual those, those things that you eat, Tori Sinin being a mountain that is blessed, but they still say that it is possible by extension then to look at those places and their locations. So the first one refers to the Ard or the land of Asham, of Jerusalem and Damascus, and those are the lands of Isa alayhi salam. Why is um, Damascus mentioned as being the land of Isa alayhi salam? Well, that's a question for you guys. Why? So we know Jerusalem is because that's where he lived and that's where you know, that's where he, he spent his time and that's where he was given his prophethood and that's where he called his people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that's where he's raised into heaven. But why Damascus? Why are they saying Damascus as well? Yeah, very good. Because that's where he will descend and return, right? Towards the end of time, as we know, in the signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah from the major signs, is the descent of Isa alayhi salam and his descent will be, as the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, by the white minaret of Damascus. And so that's why the scholars have chosen those two locations as referring to Isa alayhi salam. But in verse 2, what is it referring to? Verse 2 is referring to, as we said, the city or uh, the, the land of Musa alayhi salam. Right? Jabal al-Tur or the Turi Sayna is the mountain of Musa alayhi salatu wasalam. So now it's referring to the land in which Musa alayhi salam resided. And we know that Musa alayhi salam didn't enter into Jerusalem. Because his people, as we know, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, because of their refusal to enter and to fight and to rid Jerusalem of the evil, tyrannical people that lived therein, they were stopped from entering and finding the place and they wandered the earth, right? The wandering years, the years of bewilderment. For 40 years, they wandered. And it was during those years of wandering that uh, upon the earth, wandering upon the earth, that Musa salam passes away. And Musa salam, so therefore he doesn't enter into Jerusalem. There are relations in the Sunnah that Musa salam asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that before he takes his soul that he should allow him to see Jerusalem from a distance and a horizon. And so Musa salam went up to a mountain and he looked and saw from a distance the city of Jerusalem and that is where his soul was taken alayhi salatu wasalam. So this is the second position, right? But even so, we still say the tafsir of Turi Sinin is that it's referring to the actual mountain. So first and foremost, the fig refers to the fig. The olive refers to the olive. Turi Sinin refers to Turi Sinin. But by extension, as was the position of a number of scholars, and we will go into this inshallah ta'ala in, in more detail um, when we come to the end of verse number three, we will see the difference of opinion that you have amongst the scholars of tafsir as to exactly how those verses should be understood, whether we still take it in terms of it being, uh, in terms of it being literal or whether it's possible to attach a another different meaning to these particular issues that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by. I have a research question for you that refers also to this particular surah. 
afun, this particular verse, verse number two. The difference of opinion that we find here is because of the word sinin. Right? And sinin, as we said, some of the scholars said that it's referring to a word, uh, the word refers to a mountain in which there is greenery, vegetation. Others said that it refers to a mountain that is good and blessed. And that's because sinin, the scholars differ as to whether it is an actually an Arabic word or whether it's a word that comes from a different language that has been Arabized. Right? And so it's something which is Mu'arrab. So it's a foreign word that has then uh, taken into the Arabic language and used as being part of Arabic. That brings us to the issue, which is a very interesting issue that you will find in the books of Tafsir, in the books of Usul al-Tafsir, the principles of Tafsir, and also in the books of Usul al-Fiqh as well. And that is the question as to whether or not it is possible in the Arabic Quran, in the Quran, to have words that are non-Arabic. Is it possible in the Quran to have words that are non-Arabic? Right, and this is an, a position that you will find that the scholars on issue that you will find the scholars mention in the books of Ulum al-Quran and Usul al-Tafsir and Usul al-Fiqh they ask this question and that's what I want you to look into and to help you kind of understand uh, the issue where, that we're looking at what the scholars do is that they break it into three categories they break down this issue into three distinct categories the first of them is and this is an issue of consensus so there's no difference of opinion on the first two categories, the difference of opinion comes into the third category. The first two categories in which there is no difference of opinion, there is ijma' consensus amongst the scholars of Islam, is that number one, it's not possible in the Quran to have sentences, more than one word, a group of words that are non-Arabic. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Inna Indeed, we have revealed to you a Quran that is in Arabic. And Allah says in the Quran, بِلِسَانٍ عَرَبِيٍ mubin. It is in a clear, manifest Arabic language. So therefore, for there to be sentences or a group of words that come together one after the other that make a part of a sentence or part of a verse to be in an Arabic goes against the Qur'an itself. And because it goes against and Allah clearly says that it is an Arabic Qur'an, the scholars have agreed by consensus that the Qur'an doesn't bring either a verse in its entirety or part of a verse, meaning a number of words together in a verse that are non-Arabic. That's an issue of consensus. So you don't need to worry about category number one. Category number two, which is also an issue of consensus, is that there are names in the Qur'an that are originally non-Arabic, non-Arabic names, because those prophets and those people that are mentioned didn't come from places uh, that were Arab lands. And so therefore their names were non-Arabic names, because the prophets came from lands and they behaved like their people and they grew up in their customs, and so their names were the names of their people as well. So like Ibrahim and Ismail, and Ishaq, and Ya'qub, and other names in the Qur'an, these names of the prophets of Bani Israel, some of them and others from amongst them, these are not Arabic names. They were Arabized, they became uh, popular names in Arabic and they're embedded in, in, into the Arabic language and so on, but they are not. Even the, the names of the angels Jibra'il and Mika'il, right? the scholars say that they are not Arabic names in, originally, right? that they are Aramaic or Hebrew in their, in their origin. That's also not an issue of difference of opinion. That those, those names are mentioned in the Quran and their origin is not Arabic. Their origin is from other languages, but they are names that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran because it refers to those individuals. There is no difference of opinion on these two issues. So number one, that the Quran can't consist of more than one word in succession or a number of words together being non-Arabic. And number two, that there are names that are mentioned of places perhaps or names of people or names of angels and so on, prophets that are non-Arabic. 
There is no difference of opinion amongst those two, in those two issues amongst the scholars. The third issue is where there is a difference of opinion. And that is whether there are other words that are not names, don't reference places or people or angels that are Arabic or non-Arabic. Can there be other words? That is where the difference of opinion is. And this is an example, sinin. Is sinin an Arabic word or a non-Arabic word? And if it's a non-Arabic word, does that mean then that the Quran contains non-Arabic words? This is the third issue is where there's a difference of opinion, right? And I hope that that's clear. And that's what I want you to look into. You don't have to worry about the first two issues uh, because if you come across that, that, that may have confused you. So I've kind of eliminated them from you. So those two issues, you don't have to worry about. The third issue is whether this is a place where there can be in the Quran non-Arabic in it, right? Non-Arabic in it. And you will find that this is an issue of difference of opinion that goes back uh, all the way to the likes of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah and others, right? It's not a new issue or something which is recent. Imam al-Tabari, others, many of them mention this and reference this. And it's an important issue to understand uh, because it is often used by people, Orientalists and others, as a way of disparaging the Quran and the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that it's a contradiction. Allah says, بِلِسَانٍ عَرَبِيٍ مُبِينٍ Right? It's an Arabic Quran, but then you come and you say, actually, no, that word means this is not an Arabic word. And so that's an important issue to understand because we have to understand these issues from an Islamic point of view and what the scholars said. Right, And so there is a difference of opinion on this issue. That is what I want you to research, inshallah ta'ala, for next week. Right, For next week. And the way that the Quran, or Afwan, and the way that the, the scholars, rather, um, speak about this is that they refer to these words as al-fadun nakira, just general words. Right? So we're not talking about names and places that are referenced. We're talking about just general words. So like the word sinin and the word istabraq and the word uh, sundus in the Quran. Are these words originally Arabic or are they Persian? Are they Hebrew? Are they Roman? What are they? Where do they come from? Right? Are they uh, Habashi, Abyssinian in origin? Right? And so on and so forth. So that's something which uh, I want you to look into inshallah ta'ala for next week. Bismillahi ta'ala. Verse number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then takes another oath. And Allah Azza wa says, وَهَذَا الْبَلَدِ الْأَمِينَ By this safe town. Right? And I'm going through this particular verse now because there's actually not a difference of, of opinion concerning the particular meaning of this verse because by ijma', by consensus, the scholars of tafsir say that when it's referring to the safe town, that safe town is referring to the city of Mecca. That's what it's referring to. Right? And that is a position that the scholars agreed upon. So when it comes to Turi Sinin, it can have possible multiple meanings in the Quran right, and in the Arabic language. And likewise, Atin and Zaytun. But when it comes to the safe city, there is only one safe city that Allah Azza wa has mentioned in the Quran as being Baladan Aminan or Haraman Amina. And that is the city of Mecca. And this was the statement as mentioned by Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma and Ka'ab and Al-Hasan al-Basri and Mujahid and Ikrima and Qatada and Abdurrahman ibn Zayd ibn Aslam and Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala said the same thing, right? that it's referring to Al-Baladul Amin. Al-Baladul Amin is the city of Mecca. It is a place that gives sanctuary to the Arabs from its enemies, because as we said before in the tafsir of Surah Fil and Quraysh, it's a place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defended, that those people didn't have to worry about enemies from outside, because Allah Azza wa made it a sacred, made it a sacred and holy city and land, and therefore the Arabs uh, they are, the Arabs respected its position as being such, right? And also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved the people within it from civil war and strife and poverty and those types of things as well. That's why Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala says, وَالْبَلَدِ الْأَمِينَ مَكَّةٌ بِلَا خِلَافٍ 
and the safe town that Allah is referencing in this verse is the city of Mecca and there is no difference of opinion in this. The one issue then therefore that remains in the tafsir of these first three verses in which Allah takes an oath by the city of Mecca, uh, by the fig and by the olive and by Turi Sinin and by the safe town of Mecca is that whether it's literal or whether it's referring to something else and that's what inshallah ta'ala discussion that we're going to leave till next week because it will require from us some time to go into and it's not something which I want to uh, go over very quickly or rush in the short space of time that we have remaining with us today so inshallah ta'ala that's something which we will leave till next week so please remember the research question just again to reiterate and so that we understand there are three categories concerning the issue of the non-Arabic words in the Quran two of them are issues of consensus you can't have a number of words in succession you can't have for example a whole verse or even half a verse or whatever that is non-Arabic because that goes against what is clearly mentioned in the Quran that the Quran is an Arabic Quran and at the same time it's possible to have names that are referring that are originally non-Arabic names in the Quran those two are issues of consensus agreement amongst the scholars the third issue is can you have other words don't fall into those two categories just the odd word like sinin here right like the word mishka like the word sundus like the word istabraq right all of those that's something which we can uh, look at inshallah ta'ala okay so uh, any questions inshallah ta'ala we'll take them now otherwise we can conclude for today okay so let me just uh, scroll back okay uh, I know we have had this lesson three weeks ago, but I really appreciate if you can answer this question urgently. When, when in Salah, if I want to finish on a sajda ayah and not read any further surahs, like for example, the last verse of Surah Alaq, can I combine my tilawa sajda with my Salah sajda? I, I go to Rukur, do sajda as normal with intention, and we're also being tilawa sajda? No. There are two separate things. The sajda the tilawa is different to your sajda, which that you normally do in Salah. The two are not combined. Uh, and the Prophet وسلم, never combined them. There's no narration of him or any of his companions or anyone else having combined them. And so therefore it's not something which you can do. Right? The most that you will find that some of the scholars say is whether it can be made up. Is it something that you can make qada of? So for example, if you're reading uh, in a silent prayer behind the Imam, and the Imam is reading whatever he's reading, but you decide to read Surah Alaq. Now for you, as we said, it's not good for you to go into sajda at the end of that surah because you're going to break away from what the imam is doing and you're not following them but can you make sajda at the end by yourself after the salam after the prayer finishes you make sajda of your own that's an issue of difference of opinion is there qada for sajda tilawa and if so then when and how long can that gap remain that's an issue that you will find and the reason why the issue is made is because of this type of circumstance that you generally don't delay it and so when you now delay your sajda tilawa and combine it with your normal sajda then that is also part of that issue which therefore goes against the general principle and that is that you make the sajda tilawa at the time that it's done right and that's why as we said um you know the majority of the scholars recommend that if you are going to read something like surah alaq after your sajda you would come up and you wouldn't go into rukur but you would read the opening of another surah or another short surah and then you would go into rukur and allah knows best okay thank you also for those of you that sent this um uh, the links to Al-Itqan uh, if anyone comes across this actually looks into it properly rather than just a cover or something uh, if someone can look into it and just give me feedback in terms of uh, if it's actually the whole thing or not the whole thing or 
how well it's been done, that would be very helpful. So it's a very good book, and it's actually it would actually be a good book to do a reading of. Like Al-Itqan fi Ulum Al-Quran would be a very nice book to do a reading of. Uh, it's a much bigger book, but at some point, inshallah ta'ala, if it's actually the full uh, translated version anyway. Okay, so uh, I think there was another question here. Uh, Imam Al-Tabari's two broad opinions, why did not include the opinion of Teen referring to Damascus, given that this was more predominant to the opinion of it being Al-Judi? That's a good question, and the reason why that seems to be the case, even though Imam Al-Tabari mentions all of those narrations, so he mentions them, but then he chooses as the broad opinion of mentioning just Al-Judi, because he seems to say that Damascus and Jerusalem are one, right? It's referring to one thing, because both of them are referring to Isa salam. whereas if you add Judi, then now you add another prophet, right, to that mix so you have you know the prophet isa salam, jerusalem and damascus the prophet musa which is in authority sinin and our prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam from the city of mecca now if you add judi you add the prophet Nuh alayhi salam as well and that seems to be the reason why he chose that particular position of adding judi right and so we're speaking about the most prominent prophets that allah sent to mankind and so Nuh alayhi salam would be from amongst them and allah knows best uh, going back to the quls, is it allowed to combine reading into the hands, blowing and wiping with the quls we recite after salah? Or is the reciting, blowing and wiping in the hands specifically for bedtime? That's generally the sunnah. So the Prophet would blow upon himself before he would sleep upon his face and his body and what he could reach with his hands. So that's mentioned at the time of sleeping. As for the Prophet doing after salah, I don't know of any narration. But the Prophet in terms of his adhkar generally after salah, when he's reading these surahs, that he would blow into his hands and wipe over himself. If, however, for example, you're going to, this is the last thing you do before you go to bed, right? So this is the last thing you do as you go into bed. It's the last, like, you're going to read literally this and then you go straight to bed. Then if someone combines them, inshallah ta'ala, I hope that that it's okay. But generally speaking, you would separate the two. And to follow the sunnah as it is, so you do the quls after salah and then you do them again at the time for bed. That seems to be uh, better and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay. So inshallah ta'ala we'll conclude there. Jazakumullah khairan and inshallah ta'ala uh, we will see you all next week. Bidnillah wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.